Thank you, Chris and worship team. I just want you to think for a moment about why uh, this weekend for students is called Encounter. It is not at all a reflection that these students do not know who Jesus is. It's that the goal is for them to see him in a new and fresh way. And really, we all need to encounter Jesus every Sunday. Uh, Jesus is, I've heard it often said, like a beautiful diamond that you look at him in one light and you see the radiance of of his beauty coming through, but you turn it and you look at it from a different facet and you see even more. And we will spend eternity seeing all the different facets of Jesus' beauty. And to encounter him is not only to see him, new facets of him that we haven't seen before, but it is to be impacted by that. So it changes how we relate to him, and it changes how we live uh, following him. That's uh, one of the reasons why we are in the Gospel of Mark, is to encounter Jesus in a new and fresh way. We are, this week, we have made our way up to Mark chapter 6. I'll be be picking it up in just a moment in verse 30. We'll go through verse 44 today. Let me just set the context so we kind of see how we've gotten to this point. Uh, Back two weeks ago when Pastor Luke preached the early part of chapter 6, we saw in verse 6 that Jesus summoned the 12 disciples and he sent them out in pairs. It was, you know, you might say the first missions trip. He sent them into the the villages and the towns around Capernaum where they were were based out of. And and we read, as as Pastor Luke preached, we read in, in verse 12 that he sent them out to preach the gospel of repentance, turning to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And in verse 13, that it was an extension of his ministry. In his power, they were able to cast out demons. They were able to heal people in his name. They were able to bring people to repentance and faith. So that brings us to verse 30. Now they return. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught, referring to the missions trips that they had just gotten back from. It is interesting that this is the first time that Mark uses the term apostles to describe the 12 disciples. Who are apostles? The meaning of apostle is sent ones. Apostles are those who are sent by Jesus Christ, and that's what they've done. They've just returned from being sent out. And these men, of course, become capital A apostles, the 12 apostles upon which Jesus established his church. But every follower of Jesus at at times has the opportunity to be a lowercase apostle, one who is sent out, one who is sent out to your family, one is sent out to your workplace, to your school, in order to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who've not heard of him. So they are apostles sent out, now they return, and in verse 31, having gathered them upon their return, he said to them, come away by yourself to a remote place or a desert wilderness place and rest for a while, For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Verse 32, so they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place. Jesus recognizes that uh, they need time to think through what they've experienced. Jesus recognizes they need rest. Our, Our students probably need rest, not just physically, but time of solitude to process what they've heard and been impacted by this weekend. 
So Jesus takes them to a remote place, a a wilderness place, a place that is free of distractions of the world where they can think calmly, where they can speak with Him, ask Him questions about what they've experienced. They can pray with Him. And this speaks to us today. We all need, as we follow Jesus, we all need times of rest. We all need places of solitude. We all need to get free of the demands made from us and, and to just simply be with Jesus and process what He's doing in our lives. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe whether it's in your family or your school or your workplace or some other setting in your life, the way the Lord is using you uh, does take a toll on you physically, emotionally, spiritually. And maybe what the Holy Spirit wants you to hear through Mark this morning is the words of Jesus calling to you, come away with me to a remote place, to a place of solitude and rest for a while. Jesus wants to draw you away to be with Him uh, as He continues to use you in the lives of others. We see, though, very quickly that solitude that Jesus wanted for Him and His disciples, that, that solitude, that, that time of rest that His disciples probably wanted, they cannot have. And just what is going on here is they probably left their base in Capernaum. They got in a boat, and they went across the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee to somewhere along the northeast shore, just east of where the Jordan River comes in from the north to what Jesus thought was going to be a deserted area. But they were sailing, no doubt, close enough to the shore that people who lived along the shore saw them and recognized them. That's Jesus. That's His disciples. And we pick up in verse 33, many people saw them leaving and recognized them. People ran there by land from all the towns and arrived there ahead of him. Because of Jesus' popularity at this time in his ministry, he drew crowds wherever he was. He didn't exactly sneak off secretly to get to this place of solitude. He was observed word spread, and soon you had a whole crowd who's running around the northern tip of this, that lake, the Sea of Galilee, some of them who probably arrived before they even made the uh, beach on the shore there. Um, in spite of his own weariness and need for time alone, Mark tells us that when he stepped ashore and he saw the huge crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so, even in his weariness, even in his need to be with his disciples, he began to teach them many things. Pause for a minute and think about what Jesus saw. Uh, Jesus is encountering a, a massive crowd there. I don't like crowds. When I, when I see crowds, I'm probably like the disciples were here. I, I'm annoyed. I'm frustrated. I'm irritated. What was it that Jesus saw when he saw a crowd that moved him to compassion Jesus, no doubt, saw thousands of immortal souls who were spiritually hungry, who were spiritually hurting, who were spiritually lost, who were spiritually on the highway to hell. He saw that. That's what he saw in the crowds, which convicts me from what I see. When, picture yourself stuck in traffic on, on one of the highways around here on your way to work. Do you see the drivers in other cars as, as just they're, they're, they're ones who are obstacles to you getting down to your destination uh, faster? Or do you see them like Jesus sees them? Can we see them through Jesus' eyes as 
for all we know, many of these people are spiritually lost and spiritually hungry and spiritually on the highway to hell. I want to have the eyes of Jesus when I see people around me. Compassion. Henriksen describes Jesus' compassion like this. In his mind, he probes their sorrows, and he understands. And in his heart, he takes their burdens, and he loves them. And in his will, he removes their afflictions. He heals them. You see, for Jesus, compassion is not just an emotion, although it starts in a feeling, but that that feeling, that emotion that he feels moves him to action. It moves him to teach them. It moves them to inconvenience himself for them. It moves him to feed them. It moves him to be with them. Now, I want to have that same kind of compassion. That is the compassion for people, especially lost people, that Jesus wants to produce in you and me. And maybe you're here this morning, and whether you identify this or not, you're, you're lost. You are at least, uh, you don't know where you're going spiritually. You're spiritually hungry in some way. You're asking questions that indicate spiritual hunger. Let me extend to you the Bible's promise that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And so the very same Jesus that looks at the crowds there in Mark chapter 6 and is filled with compassion is the same Jesus that looks at you today, is the same Jesus that has the same heart towards you today. He wants you to encounter him today, particularly if you're spiritually searching we don't see the same degree of compassion that Jesus had in his disciples. In fact, in verse 35, I think you can hear their annoyance. I think you can hear their irritation, their frustration. Jesus, this place is a wilderness. Jesus, it's already late. Jesus, send these people away so they can go out into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You know, that's, that's, frankly, that's me too often. That's, I think, us as, as, as Christians too often. We often, when we're faced with the needs of other people, especially needs that seem to be overwhelming, like no doubt the need of this crowd was, we're tempted, like the disciples, to want to send them away empty-handed. You know, I can't meet those needs. It's not my responsibility. They need to take care of themselves. I got enough to do just taking care of myself and my loved ones but that's not Jesus' response. He, he, rather than focusing on, on maybe what could have been, you know, some justified irritation and frustration, he says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they, they respond really in sarcasm. You mean we should go out and, 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 and buy food? It would take 200 denarii, 200 day's wages of an average worker at that time to to buy enough bread to feed all these people. But Jesus simply responds to the question, how many loaves do you have? Go look. It's striking to me at this point that Jesus doesn't just simply step forward and say, I got this. I'm going to produce enough food for all of these people. Don't worry. No, he, he points to them. He He wants to use his disciples to accomplish what he is about to do. And that is the same today, especially with Jesus now being at the right hand of God. He 
works through his church. He works through his redeemed. That's you and me if we know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And often the way he wants to minister is through you and, and through me, individually and collectively. And so in, in one way or another, he, he says to you and me, you give them something to eat. You meet that need, meaning that he wants to work through us to meet that need. They sarcastically respond in a way that makes it clear they don't think they have the resources. They, they don't believe that they have what it's going to take to meet this need and minister in His name. How often do we do that? How often do we individually and how often do we even as a church, do we hear Jesus' call to minister in His name when He puts a clear need in front of us and we respond in some form like the disciples, Jesus, we don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough resources. There's nothing we can do, Jesus. Send them away. Let them take care of themselves. The disciples, you know, like you and I often, are overwhelmed by this, this, the magnitude of this challenge. And they think, like I often think, Jesus, you're making an unreasonable, if not impossible, demand. But Jesus doesn't focus on what they think they don't have, does he? He focuses on what they do have. Ask them that question. Go see what you actually do have, what you can offer to me, which again is often how he wants us to look, not at what we don't have, but what do we have? What has he entrusted to us individually and as a church that we can offer up to him? They, they turn and they find out they have five loaves and two fish, and, and apparently he's, he's going to make do with that. And so he instructs them all to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sit down in ranks of, of hundreds and fifties. In other words, Order yourselves, he tells them. Order the people in groups anywhere between 50 and 100 to be served. 41, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heavens, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Exactly when the miracle occurred, Mark doesn't really make it clear. I think it was as the bread was in his hands, and he's blessing it, and he's breaking it, and he's distributing it, that God just miraculously keeps multiplying it and providing it. And all we know for sure is that there was more than enough for everyone to be fully fed with plenty to spare. Verse 42, everyone ate and was filled. And in that culture, it was rare that you got enough to eat that you were actually filled. I, I don't need any more. And not only was everybody fully fed, verse 43, there was much left over. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. And then the total scope of the miracle, Mark gives us only a partial glimpse of in verse 44, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. For whatever reason, Mark does not include the women and the children who probably at least doubled that number. Really, I think you could call this the miraculous feeding of the 10,000 plus and that's probably a conservative figure. Like these disciples, these tired, exhausted disciples, we frequently can't see. We frequently can't believe that we do have what it takes to minister in Jesus' name if we look to Jesus. But here Jesus shows us, He shows His disciples then, 
He shows us as His disciples, His followers now, that He can multiply even the limited resources, money, time, energy, what have you, as we offer it to Him in faith. Now, that's kind of an overview of the passage. What is it that, that um, the Holy Spirit is doing in having Mark include this miracle? This miracle, by the way, that shows up in all four Gospels. This is one of the rare instances where the same thing shows up in all four Gospels. So it's important. It's significant. Why is it that God includes, out of all the miracles that Jesus did, many of which were not recorded, this miracle? I want to lead to that with a couple observations. And here is the first observation. This miracle was no accident. Now, what do I mean by that? All the miracles that Mark has shown us of Jesus up to this point are miracles where Jesus came upon circumstances and responds to those circumstances, healings, uh, other, other, casting out demons. He came upon and encountered those people and miraculously responded. But this is different. This, for the first time, is where Jesus deliberately creates the circumstances. He creates the situation here to which the people must be fed. I mean, think about this for a minute. Jesus knew as he crossed that lake close to the shore, the crowds were going to see him and, and most likely follow him. And then when he arrives on the shore and there's all the crowds, Jesus had that opportunity to tell the multitudes Uh, You all need to go. I I need to spend time with my disciples now. I'll be with you tomorrow or whatever he might have said. But no, Jesus welcomes them. Jesus begins to teach them. And then Jesus teaches them through the day until it gets late in the day, knowing that they are far from any sources of food at this remote place, and yet he kept them intentionally this long. He is creating, I believe, the circumstances where these people must be fed, and there's no realistic, practical way of feeding these people. Why would Jesus deliberately create such a situation? I think it's because, and that leads to my next observation, this miracle really wasn't for the multitudes. I mean, they benefited from it by eating the miraculously provided food, but this miracle was for the disciples. There is no indication that Mark gives that the multitudes even knew about the multiplication of the food. And in other miraculous accounts, Mark records that the people were astonished. But here, all we know is the people were fed. And since the disciples were distributing the food, the the people may have had no way of knowing really where that food came from. No, this miracle, I believe, was for his disciples, the ones who saw that bread and that fish multiplying in his hands. And it's not only for his disciples, it's for the readers of Mark's gospel, which includes you and me. This miracle is for you and I to see. What does he want us to see? Why would he do this in such a way that his disciples then and now are to see something? And I, I think that leads to my third observation. This miracle reveals, again, turning that diamond to a new facet, new facets about who Jesus really is. Many of the people then, and and many people, frankly, today, maybe even some of you saw Jesus as a good man, as as a great teacher, even as a miracle worker, but he's more than that. This miracle reveals 
in a new way, turning that diamond to a new side, that He is the promised, prophesied Son of God, the one who came to be their Messiah, our Savior. And though you may know those words, I think the glimpse we're going to have in our remaining time may give you a new facet of that, a new way to see Jesus as the Son of God, the promised one, a new way to see Jesus as the Messiah. How, how does this miracle reveal that? Well, there are three pictures that, that I want us to see that I think Mark is very intentional as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to raise up through this text that, that we are to see that reveal him as the divine Son, our Savior. And the first is this. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the great shepherd. Now, let me set the table here. Verse 34 Mark includes the statement that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That is not a phrase that Mark just pulls out of the thin air. That is an Old Testament phrase. That is a phrase that is used over and over again in the Old Testament to describe God's people, the people of Israel, who are in a spiritually helpless state, a spiritually starved state. They they, they lack spiritual guidance and protection. Why? Because the men who are supposed to be their shepherds, the priests and other religious leaders, are more interested in controlling them and profiting from them than in feeding them and caring for them. We see this image really clearly in Ezekiel chapter 34 as God speaks through, Israel, through Ezekiel and he condemns the priests and the religious leaders at that time. Listen to Ezekiel 34. Woe to the shepherds of Israel, those priests, who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Yet you eat the fat You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the the lost. You have ruled over them harshly and brutally so that they were scattered because they had no shepherd and they became food for every wild beast." And what was going on in Israel, frankly, can, can happen in churches when, when leaders are, are, are more concerned about control than they are about shepherding. And because at that time their spiritual shepherds, the priests of, of, of Israel, were more interested in being rulers than shepherds, the people were scattered. The people spiritually wandered, and they became exposed to the dangers of sin and spiritual destruction. But God promises through Ezekiel. God promises, verse 11, I myself, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. I will tend them with good pasture. They will lie down in pleasant places and feed in the lush pasture of the hills. I will feed my flock, God says. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. And that image, 
Maybe you know that image. If you know the Psalms at all, what is perhaps the most well-known Psalm? Psalm 23. What do we see of the image of the shepherd in Psalm 23? God again presents himself as our good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It is no coincidence that we find this language of sheep without a shepherd used by Mark, this language from Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23 and other Old Testament references. Mark wants us to see it. Mark wants us to understand that here is the fulfillment of all of these. Where do we most supremely see God as our shepherd? We see it in Jesus. Jesus, the great shepherd. Consider the details that Mark gives us in this account in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Jesus began to teach them many things. He leads them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse 39, Jesus instructed them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. He makes them lie down in green pastures. It's not incidental. It's not coincidental that Mark includes even that little detail. Verse 42, everyone ate and was filled. I shall not want, Psalm 23. He satisfies their physical and spiritual hunger. Mark wanted the original readers of this gospel to see this. Mark wants us to see it. Mark wants you to see it today. God had Mark record this for us to see, for us to embrace Jesus as the great shepherd. And so I ask you, do you see that facet of the diamond of Jesus today? Jesus is your great shepherd. You know him as the great shepherd. Consider the ways that he is the great shepherd to you. He seeks you when you are lost and rescues you. When you and I are lost in sin, he is the one, the shepherd, the good shepherd that leaves the 99 and he goes out after the one lost one and rescues that sheep. That's, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that's what he's done for you as he's done for me. If you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he is on a rescue mission for you now. He binds up your brokenness and he heals your wounds the sin that we choose, the sin that's been inflicted upon us, leaves us wounded in many, many ways, emotionally, spiritually, sometimes physically. He is the good shepherd that seeks to heal those wounds, to bind us up in the places where our hearts are broken. And he restores your soul. He gives you rest, and he leads you in the paths of righteousness as he works through his Holy Spirit in your life. Do you know Jesus as your great shepherd? Today, he wants you to encounter him as your great shepherd. You can know him even today in his rescue mission as he searches out for you. That's one of the images that Mark wants us to see. The second one, the second picture, is the picture of Jesus as the new and greater Moses. What is Moses probably most well known for? Leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. And what is the motif? What is the theme here? Where does this miracle occur? In the wilderness. 
Notice the the imagery that Mark gives us. Verse 31, Jesus leads them, both the disciples and the crowd, to a desolate or a, a desert, a wilderness place. Verse 35, the disciples comment on this. This place is a wilderness. These repeated references to wilderness, they're no accident. They recall Israel's 40 years in the wilderness following the exodus from Egypt and of God raising up Moses to be the shepherd that leads them through the wilderness. What are the elements of that wilderness wandering of Israel that that show up in this account? Well, consider one. Consider the obvious one. It comes from Exodus 16.32. God provides manna through Moses, as that verse says, the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Or consider in Numbers chapter 27, this is near the end of Moses' life. God has just told Moses that, Moses, you're not going to cross the Jordan River with the people of Israel and go into the promised land. I'm going to raise up somebody else to do that. And Moses prays, God, they need somebody. They need a shepherd. They need a shepherd so that the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And God did that to some degree in Joshua, the man who actually led them across the Jordan. But God had something much bigger in mind. God had an ultimate Moses to be the shepherd that would lead his people, all his chosen people, into the promised land. And Jesus is that new and greater Moses. Again, note the details that Mark highlights in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. He taught them many things as Moses teaches the people of Israel God's law in the wilderness. Verse 39, he had them sit down in ranks of hundreds and of fifties. And that's language that you wonder, why would that be in the story there, especially that, that concept of ranks? It's picking up on the imagery of even in the middle of the wilderness how God had Moses order the tribes of Israel as they encamped. In verse 41, he provided them with bread from heaven, which of course recalls the gift of manna that God gave to the Israelites through Moses. Again, this is no coincidence. Jesus did this intentionally for his disciples then and for you and me now to see him, perhaps in a new light, from a new facet. So again, I I need to ask you the question this morning is, is Jesus your great Moses? Maybe you've never encountered him as your Moses, but think about him as the fulfillment, the ultimate Moses. He leads you in a new and greater exodus. The original exodus is leading the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. But you and I were even greater slaves. We were enslaved to sin. We were in in Satan's kingdom enslaved. And Jesus, by saving us, is our Moses who leads us in an exodus out of our slavery to sin. He meets your spiritual and physical needs. He, like Moses, guiding the people through the wilderness, He guides us through the wilderness of this this world, this present life, meeting our needs. He leads you towards the true promised land. Yeah, Moses or Joshua led the people into the promised land, the geographic land of Canaan. Jesus, as the ultimate Moses, leads us into the promised land of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
Finally, one more image. Jesus is not just the great shepherd. Jesus is not just the great and ultimate Moses. Finally, there is the image in this passage and in this miracle of Jesus as the host of the great banquet, the messianic banquet. Verse 41, notice, listen to the language here. He took up the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and he broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. Does that language sound at all familiar to you? It's not quite word for word, but it is the same language sequence that Mark uses later in chapter 14 to describe what Jesus did at the Last Supper. Mark 14, 22, as they were eating, what did Jesus do? He took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body. That image of the Messiah hosting a banquet, a great banquet for all those that he saved. It runs through the Old Testament and it runs through the New Testament. Let me give you one Old Testament and one New Testament reference. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, 6, and the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Revelation 19, 9 in the New Testament. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's that image, Old Testament and New Testament. What Jesus does here in the feeding of the 5,000, and again, what he's going to do in chapter 8 with the feeding of the 4,000, it gives us a glimpse of that future banquet. It gives us a foretaste of that wedding feast of the Lamb. And that leads me to ask you this morning, will you be at that great banquet? You know, it's been a while since we have celebrated the Lord's Supper, and, and there is a reason for that as we are preparing for our solemn assembly, our, our service of reconciliation. But what is it that we do when, among all the things we do, when we come together for the Lord's Supper? We get a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a dim picture of that great banquet that Jesus the Messiah will host for all those that he has saved throughout the world, through all time. That is a picture in what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. The miraculous multiplication of the five loaves and two fish to feed more than 5,000, it's purposeful. It was intended by God to reveal Jesus as the divine Son, for you and I to see him more clearly as our great shepherd, for you and I to see him more clearly as the great and ultimate Moses leading us in the great and ultimate Exodus. It is intended ultimately to show us and to give us a hunger for that ultimate banquet, that great banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb that we will one day experience if we know Jesus as Savior and Lord. This revelation is given you this morning through this miracle so that you might respond to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. If you don't know him in that way this morning, there's an opportunity even this morning to know him as shepherd, to know him as Moses, to know him as the host of that banquet. We'll have people up at the front. We'll have people in the back as the service closes who would love to pray with you, who, who would love to process that with you. 
if you, if you do know him, if you, like I, you remember that point in your life where you crossed over and he rescued you out of Satan's kingdom, he wants you to see him this morning like turning that diamond in a new facet. And to, as the words of the song say, that old song say, to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more dear, nearly day by day. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this revelation of Jesus and this miraculous account. And I I just offer up my words and my thoughts, Lord, as inadequate as that five loaves and two fish were. And I pray that as your spirit works in the minds and hearts of all who hear today, you would miraculously multiply it and you would accomplish your work, your miraculous work, in the hearts and the minds and the lives of everyone here. We worship you, Jesus. We want to behold you. We want to encounter you. Amen.